listening to Tennessee Roads, recorded in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. Well, hey there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tennessee Roads Podcast. My name's Dusty, and I'll be your guide as we hitchhike through all of the towns and communities that make up the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. Well, hey there, everybody, and welcome back to Tennessee Road Podcast. We're super glad to be back on the air and have you with us, so pull up a chair, and let's hitchhike through some history, shall we? Now, when most people think of East Tennessee, they think of names like Dolly Parton, Dollywood, the University of Tennessee, the 1982 World's Fair, and the scruffy city on the river. Unfortunately, Knoxville does have some notorious parts to it. So, for today's topic, we wanted to dip our toes in the waters of true crime. While we don't always do true crime style, we do think that it's important to do some of these topics that impact us directly in our area. So today, I wanted to discuss what some people have debated as the most notorious unsolved crime to shake up East Tennessee during the mid-20th century. Today, we'll discuss the still unsolved, brutal killing of Rose Bush. Now, one thing I want to say before we get started and get in too deep is a lot of time has progressed since this murder, which happened in the 1960s. Um, so a lot of the evidence and case files have gone missing, been destroyed, or have gone to the grave with a lot of the investigators that were involved in this case. So, um... I did a lot of digging and found a lot of things um, as much as I could and utilized our local resources. Big shout out and thank you to um, WBIR who has carried information on this story for over the years. Um, So yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right on in. One last thing I want to say before we do get started is I want to apologize in advance because there are going to be some names. Uh, and cities, locations that aren't um, probably going to be uh, pronounced correctly. Um, These are going to be some Russian uh, and other countries of origin, so again, I apologize. Um, Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Rose. Rose Brizoff was born on March 4th of 1904 to parents Robbie and Bella Brizoff in Brest-Litzvoska, Russia. She was one of seven children, according to the genealogy records that I was able to locate online. And it's unknown exactly what time uh, Rose's family migrated to America, but according to um, reports that I found, her family moved here to flee the uh, Tsarist Russia. As Rose reached her adult years, uh, she met a man by the name of Samuel Harry Bush a young businessman on the rise. They fell in love and were married in 1924. Fifteen years after they married, Harry became the sole owner of the Royal Jewelers chain in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, in those ten years that Harry owned Royal Jewelers, people watched as Rose went from uh, a reserved person 
a quiet woman to uh, a regular businesswoman. Her nephew, Marvin Brizoff, said that she was devoted uh, a great deal of her time to royal jewelers and that she was very businesslike and very sharp. Others would go on to say that the Bushes loved each other dearly and their business. Some would say that they were so devoted to their business that that's what resulted in them being childless. Eventually, Harry made the decision to sell royal jewelers to the Zells Company and invest in a number of other business dealings. By 1967, he became the owner of the United Loan, a very successful pawn shop, gun, and jewelry store that his brother and he had established in the years prior. Now, over the years, the Bushes invested in their businesses, and they quickly rose to popularity and status amongst Knoxvillians. Harry was a 33rd degree mason and was a large force for the construction of the Shrine Temple at 16th Street and White Avenue. He also chaired the United Jewish Appeal and served on the board of the Knoxville Synagogue, where Rose was also active. Now, in 1958, the Bushes moved into their custom-built home at the corner of Kinshaw and Kiowi Avenues in the heart of Sequoia Hills. Now, this was Knoxville's first suburb developed on the peninsula between downtown Knoxville and West Knoxville during the 1920s. Today, it's home to some of the most affluent residents in the city. Uh, But during this time was also when Rose started to stay home more and began to remove herself from the family business. However, this was also when her husband, Harry, started to spend more time with the other woman. Around 1965, Harry was spending a large amount of time and money with Hazel B. Davidson. Most people would refer to her as Knoxville's most notorious woman. She was married five times, and most people said she was beautiful, charismatic, and very flamboyant. She would have her lip lines, her brows plucked, and her hair on point. She garnered the nickname The Other Woman from two highly publicized divorce cases. In 1965, she was in her early 40s when she started seeing Mr. Bush. This makes Hazel around 20 to 30 years younger than Rose. Now, Hazel was notorious for using the money of men to create her living. A judge once wrote that she was a well-known playgirl with no visible means of support who lived comfortably on the gifts from prominent and prosperous suitors. Now, as time progressed, she clung to that playgirl title, even though alcohol and pills and age took its toll. She turned into running prostitution rings and became known as uh, Knoxville's most famous madam. Now, it is important to know about these things and know about Hazel, because she is going to come to play largely later in the case. But now let's get into the actual murder itself. Hey guys, are you enjoying today's episode? Well, if you are, be sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we're doing when we're not in the studio. Oh, and don't forget, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Tennessee Road Podcast, streaming wherever podcasts are played. On November 19th of 1968, Rose Bush was enjoying a chilly overcast evening by baking in her custom-made kitchen at 1026 Kinshaw Avenue. The family maid left the home about 4 p.m., while William Young finished another day as the family's long-running gardener. It is estimated that around this time, someone in downtown Knoxville was removing the valve stem and valve core from the front right tire of Harry Bush's late-model Buick. 
This damage would require a special tool and would cause the car and its owner to be busy with a timely repair. This meant that Harry Bush would not be getting home at his usual time. Now back at the Bush residence on Kenshaw Lane, gardener William Young had finished his work for the day, and Rose offered him a ride to the bus stop as she had grown accustomed to. Young declined on this day. He said that he would walk and Rose had been working in the kitchen. He exited the home and ensured that the house and Rose's Chevrolet in the carport were secure. Young said that both TVs and the radio were on in the house when he began on foot to the nearby bus stop at 5.15 p.m. Around 5.25 p.m., Harry had called his wife from his office in the United Loan on Gay Street to ask if there was anything that he needed to pick up on the way home. Shortly after this, a co-worker returned to the office to tell Harry that his car had been damaged. Harry immediately called his wife to tell her that he would be late, but he got a busy signal. He called her again a few minutes later and got no answer. He assumed at this time his wife was driving Young to the bus stop, as she often did. At 5.52 p.m., ADT company records reported that the alarm at the United Loan was switched on. This is when Harry and his co-worker B.T. Barnett Jr. took Barnett's car to Floyd's Gulf Station at Broadway and at Jackson Avenue. Harry gave his keys and the directions to his car to the attendant and said to call him when the repairs had been made. At this time, Harry called home again. But after a few moments of silence, Harry placed the phone back on the hook and was heard saying, That's odd. I just talked to Rose a few moments ago. At this time, Barnett drove Bush to his home and dropped him off. It's unclear what door Harry entered, but I assume he entered off of the carport door, which was the closest to the road and the direction of path straight from the driveway. In the hallway leading from the carport door to the kitchen, Harry saw Rose's lifeless body lying on her back. She was covered with blood from blows to her head and stab wounds across her body. She was stabbed so brutally that the last wound had pierced her heart and left the blade broken off inside. She also had a grazing gunshot wound on her hand. Her glasses and dentured lay beside her as well. Rose's purse, containing several hundreds of dollars and some jewelry, appeared to be missing from the home. In an article from the Knoxville News Sentinel several years ago, Dr. Randy Pedro studied the autopsy reports at the request of the Knoxville News Sentinel. He described the attack as brutal and prolonged, with the wounds more commonly seen in rape-type murders. At 6.11 p.m., the Knoxville Police Department received a call from Harry. A patrol officer arrived at the house at 6.15, just four minutes after Harry had made the call for help. By this time, Harry had already called two of his wife's nephews, I.B. Buddy Cohen and Saul Leeds. As police swarmed into Sequoia Hills, word of the crime spread rapidly through Knoxville. As I said before, the Bushes were widely known in the Jewish community and the Knoxville area as a whole. On the night of the slaying, Harry spoke briefly to police. He then disappeared from the public and was under a doctor's care. After a while, he began spending evenings at the homes of friends. He seemed to always appear nervous and apprehensive about returning to the home. He eventually moved into an apartment and out of the home altogether. Now, the morning after the murder, city brush crews found a pair of blood-stained white gloves in some bushes on Cherokee Boulevard. Now, this road is roughly 2,000 feet away from the home, but it would span the peninsula of Sequoia Hills from its base to its tip. Along Kinshaw Avenue, they found a blue police uniform from Cleveland, Ohio, and a yellow police-style raincoat and cap, both with fake badges. Two Ohio license plates from a stolen car, 
a second pair of gloves, and a 22 caliber Ruger semi-automatic pistol. A silencer was also found and determined to match the ending of the gun and was concluded to have broken off from the gun. Ballistic tests confirmed that this pistol was the one used to shoot Bush. The gloves were tested, and it was determined that the blood on the gloves did match the same blood type as Rose had. But remember, this was before modern DNA testing, so they were only able to match the blood type, but not link the glove directly to Rose. There was no blood evidence on any of the other clues that had been located. And upon further inspection, it was determined that the murderer had a high-quality weapon and silencer, but these items were put together in a manner that caused the gun to break. This showed investigators that the murderer had good equipment, but wasn't fully versed on how to use it. Investigators questioned many of the neighbors, scouring the home in the area where the items had been found, but to no avail, no one had seen anything suspicious. Now, you have to remember, this neighborhood was a prominent area for the wealthy in Knoxville. With its riverfront property and close proximity to the University of Tennessee in downtown Knoxville, this is not the type of neighborhood that something like this would happen. And even though police were unable to obtain any information from anyone in the area based on the evidence and the positioning of Rose's body, they were able to piece together a theory of what happened that night. And to this day, this is still the theory that is used in the case. Police theorized that the murderer used the police garb to get Rose to the door. They knew that she was a very cautious person, and for her to open the door to her carport, it would take someone that she knew or someone that she would trust, like a police officer. Once she opened the door, the gunman fired almost right away, just as she threw up her right hand, sustaining the grazing wound. Based on the damage to the firearm, police believe that the gun then jammed after they fired the first shot, so the killer subdued Bush with multiple blows to the head from the gun and the silencer. The blows were so forceful that they had fractured her skull, dented the silencer, and broke it completely off of the barrel. All of the blows were to the back and top of the head, indicating that Rose had turned and tried to flee. Once Rose was subdued, the killer grabbed a small paring knife from Rose's own kitchen to complete the crime. The killer then stabbed Rose repeatedly until the blade broke off. The broken handle was found wrapped in white tape, which Rose used to mark her kosher utensils. Police believe this went down just minutes after William Young, the family gardener, had left. The killer more than likely watched Young walk away. After all of the evidence was collected, this made investigators think that this was a contract killing versus a robbery. Plus, all of the cash and jewelry that had been thought to have been stolen had been accounted for. Everything except for Rose's three-carat diamond ring. So now it was time to start looking at who could have done this horrible thing to such a sweet and kind woman. As always, investigators looked to Harry Bush with suspicion. Due to the going under a doctor's care, Bush was not interviewed until 15 days after the killing. Around this time, it's when Harry's connection with Hazel Davidson was made public during the extensive news coverage of the murder. Now, many speculated he used his underworld contacts to find a contract killer so he could live out his uh, life with his mistress. However, Bush told investigators that they should actually look at Hazel as a suspect, as she had made statements to Bush that she was having someone watch Rose's movements. Just two days after the killing, Hazel Davidson entered KPD wearing silver boots and a white fur coat. She was accompanied by her legendary lawyer, Ray the Terror Jenkins. After her interview, both left without comment from the reporters. 
Davidson didn't stop there. She would continue to make statements to investigators and to people outside of law enforcement that would return and notify KPD. A few times, uh, she had actually said things before the murders, things that would suggest foreknowledge. However, there was an issue with Davidson's credibility. She was a heavy drinker and medication abuser, and not everything she would say would make sense. Davidson did, however, refuse a polygraph test on several occasions. But after some time, investigators determined that Davidson was not involved either. Now, while all of this is going on, investigators are still looking at Harry as a suspect. After six months, Harry was asked to take a polygraph test, and he passed. The delay in the test was caused by a medication that Bush was taking from a heart attack that he had suffered several years earlier. Now, by this time, he had married a New York widow, Sadie Tishk, T-I-S-C-H, one of the wealthiest women in America. Investigators found out that Bush did not meet Sidney until after Rose's death, so this eliminated the motive for Bush killing his wife for another woman, or Sadie being someone that could have done this. Bush and Sadie then moved to Florida shortly after their marriage to create a life away from Knoxville. Shortly after Bush left Knoxville, Davidson moved to Miami Beach. After a short time, she took a job as a hostess at the Eden Rock Hotel, and she later claimed that she converted to Judaism. Now, there was no evidence that Davidson and Bush had any association after the two left Knoxville. With those two leads closed, investigators followed several trails that led them to Ohio. The murderer had posed as a police officer, so investigators looked closely at a gang in the area that had posed as police officers to commit armed robberies in the Cleveland and Dayton areas. Some of those gang members had known ties to East Tennessee. The police coat was traced back to a Cleveland police department, but it had been donated to a smaller department before being discarded in the trash. And the weapon used to shoot and beat Rose was traced back to six previous owners, all in the state of Ohio. But sadly, investigators hit an end when the firearm was traced to a gun show. At this point, the case hit a total brick wall. And as of today, many of the investigators and officers involved in the case have since passed. And with their passing, most of the files on the case have been destroyed as well. The Knoxville safety director, Walter Bearden, who played an active role in the case, on the 40th anniversary of the event, he was quoted saying, There are murder cases that only God can deal with, and after 40 years, it's likely that God will deal with this one, or maybe he already has. been 53 years, 7 months, and over 13 days since Miss Rose Bush was gruesomely taken. The case is pretty much cold. We may never know what happened to Rose Bush, but if you or anyone you know might know anything at all, I highly recommend that you contact the East Tennessee Valley Crime Stoppers at their hotline at 865-215-7165 
or you can go online to eastteanvalleycrimestoppers.org and leave an anonymous tip there. 